This week's episode of Innovators is brought to you by the Future of Work Initiative, powered by Microsoft. Embark on the next step of your digital transformation at futurelu.com. Flyover Future welcomes you to Innovators Podcast, where we talk with people making big changes in places that you might not expect. Flyover Future is a weekly newsletter. We cover corporate innovation, startups, emerging technologies, world-class research, and a whole lot more that's happening in flyover country. Every week it hits your inbox, and every week now it's in your earbuds. Coming up on this episode... We are the best in America at this. We have three presentations coming up at the National State Longitudinal Data Systems Conference where we're presenting on three different aspects of best practices. Kentucky is really a leader in this space. So uh, other states are so jealous. We get called all the time for interviews about how to tell other states how to do what we're doing. I mean, if Kentucky is at the cutting edge of leveraging state data to build better systems for our citizens, and you know, the private sector could learn something from what's going on in government, that's not a narrative we hear that often. Whew, that is a dynamite place to start, and there is a whole lot more where that came from. Buckle up, because it's time to take off. Flyover Futures Innovators Podcast exists to have sit-down conversations with people making big changes in the world of data and AI, and it's a lot of times happening in places you don't expect, like flyover country. My name is Brian Eichenberger, and I am your executive producer, and I am joined by our host, that's Ben Reno Weber from Louisville's Future of Work Initiative. Good afternoon, Brian. I am so pumped to have here this week uh, Jessica Cunningham and Chris Stevens from KY Stats. They are doing amazing stuff within our education and workforce ecosystem in Kentucky. Oh, so it's not it's not like Kentucky basketball stats. It is not <laughs> Kentucky basketball. Usually, stats. when people want to talk to me about KY stats, they're talking about Kentucky basketball. So I'm glad. No, I'm, I'm more excited to hear about this. Actually, let's let's go. <laughs> this is full of such nerdy goodness. Uh, Jessica, can you just give a quick like what is KY stats? Sure. KY Stats houses our Kentucky Longitudinal Data System and our Labor Market Information Office in Frankfurt. So what is longitudinal data? Yeah, so it basically is a look at um, kind of that birth through the workforce over time. So like, for instance, I'm from Kentucky. I grew up in Ashland. Um, I went to Paul Blazer High School. Then I went to Georgetown College. And then I went to UK. And yes, I am a Kentucky basketball fan. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry for me. <laughs> and then obviously I'm working in Kentucky. So all of those data points are in our Kentucky longitudinal data system. I Hey, I grew up in uh, Ashland, Kentucky as well. Shortly, not grew up, but I lived in Ashland, Kentucky. went to Oakview Elementary. So I did not make it all the way to Paul Blazer High School, but shout out to Ashland. I was from Hager, so. <laughs> okay, that's ridiculous. <laughs> So I definitely want to dive into that. But before we do, uh, one of my favorite things to ask all of our guests is what's the coolest thing uh, in data or AI that you've heard about, even if you are not working on it? We're actually working with um, an initiative right now. It's called the Coleridge Initiative, and they're trying to get multiple states data. So we house just Kentucky's data, and they're trying to get multiple states on board to look at different things like post-secondary to workforce pipelines. And they've developed a system where you can have 
the data on your side and then give de-identified data into that system. So I think that's pretty innovative in the data world. And for somebody who has to constantly be talking to people about data security and privacy and trust building to share their data with us, um, that's a pretty, pretty big thing. Chris, what's the coolest thing in data or AI that you've heard about, even if it's not something you're working on? Probably the coolest things that I've seen like recently is a data visualization called Waves of Interest. It was put together by a bunch of people looking at Google Trend data. And we all want to talk about how great having all of this information is. But if you can't communicate it, you have nothing. Like if you cure cancer, but you can't tell anybody how to cure cancer, you haven't cured cancer. And so they took uh, a ton of data. They took 16 years of data and they looked at things that were important in Google News Trends over those 16 years. And they visualized it and they visualized it into five line graphs and a map. But in order to get to those five line graphs and a map, they had to do a bunch of chloroplast mapping to figure out what they had. They had to do log transformations. They had to do PCA, uh, principal component analysis. They did a bunch of distance calculations on network analysis. Like they go through and they do all of these different things to produce five visualizations for a report. And normally we're like five visualizations is five line graphs. I can do that in five minutes. And they spent months on it. So I think that that's fantastic. Oh, I also want to come back and talk about how do we take this data and make it applicable. But okay, so what's the coolest thing that you're working on at KY Stats? So I think one of the coolest thing that, that we're working on right now are some of our COVID dashboards. So in other words, being able to um, inform our, our state, our leaders, our local communities and planning for, you know, as they've reopened businesses and um, reskilling or upskilling workers, we're trying to provide, um, you know, data visualization and analytics to inform that work. So we have recently finished up a lot of our benefit cliff analysis uh, and looking at like our um, our families in Kentucky. There's been a lot of anecdotal noise about like who should get what benefits and what benefits actually look like. Like, do you need to work in the state of Kentucky or can you just live off of government subsidies? And if you are in a position where you're forced to live off government subsidies, like, do you have enough to make ends meet. And we've never been able to answer that question until now. And we partnered with the National Center for Children in Poverty, and we have a statewide family resource simulator that you can go through and you can put in like details about your family and really check into that and dive into that. Can you explain what a benefits cliff is for people who are less social justice nerdy than I am? That would be a situation where let's say, uh, uh, in some of your other podcast stuff, because I did a little bit of homework, you said that the majority of people that listen to this are like middle management people, right? So if you're a middle manager, you want your really, really good performing like employees to stay really, really good em- like performing employees. So you go through and you try and offer them incentives to stay with you. So let's say in a situation you give an individual a raise, right? You have an employee who's making $15 an hour, that's about $30,000 a year, and you give them a couple of dollar raise, right? And that bumps into $32,000 a year, right? Depending upon how that family's set up, like how many children they have, whether or not there are other people working in the household, that could push them to a higher income, which is what we wanna do. But that higher income could lead to a multiple thousand dollar loss in benefits. So while they're making $2,000 more a year, 
they're losing $4,000 in benefits. And so it's a net loss for the family to take that raise. Which is definitely what we don't want. I mean, we definitely want people to be constantly getting better and that's, you know, increasing their income. So just being able to identify that, you know, where that cutoff point is reduces uncertainty for them and helps us identify, oh, maybe we made it, we need to change the policy. So this is something fantastic that not a lot of people knew about. In uh, at the start of this year and going back for forever, the SNAP cutoff has been 135% of the federal poverty guidelines, which meant that somewhere in the low 30s, depending upon how many people are in your family, you lost SNAP benefits, right? As of May 1st, there was a policy change that moves that cutoff to 200% of the federal poverty guidelines, which moves that up to like low 40s. What it allowed it to do was it allowed SNAP benefits to decrease as you increased your income. So there's no longer this cliff effect at 30,000 where all of a sudden you have a multiple thousand dollar drop in benefits. Instead, it now reduces gradually as your income increases and we have totally eliminated the SNAP benefit cliff for the majority of the families with one policy change. Well, and I know for, you know, a state like Kentucky, where you've got a ton of, of employees you know, working in Amazon warehouses or doing, you know, manufacturing and small business, like we've got a lot of people who are working who are also eligible for SNAP. Yep. Uh, what else is you working on that you think is really cool? So we're also trying to build out our early childhood data system right now. So that birth to five kindergarten space. So we've been adding and working with our cabinet for health and family services as well. So we're one of the very few states that have data all the way from birth through the workforce. And we also have that cabinet for health and family service data. So, you know, child welfare, foster care, youth, those types of things, and any service programs across those silos we have housed in one system so that we can kind of look at, you know, across multiple services, what is kind of their pathway to kindergarten and how has that impacted their school readiness. I'm going to take over Ben's job for a second. I'm going to ask Dr. Cunningham to list all of our data sources in 30 seconds or less. Oh, goodness. Um, So we have our K-12, public K-12, Kentucky Department of Education, all of our public and private post-secondary institutions. We have unemployment insurance. We have revenue. We have SNAP, TANF. Um, vital statistics, that's birth and death data. Um, we have corrections data. Uh, let's see. We have driver's license. Um, let's see here. What am I? Th- uh, financial aid data. So that's the Kia data. Um, we have our teach all of our teacher education um, standards and pr- professional provider system. We have that in our data system. Thirty-seven seconds, so that's pretty okay. solid. <laughs> wow, that's I mean, I so I, my mind is a little bit blown because I'm thinking about all the researchy things that you could do with that. But part of how we got connected was Chris and I were on a call about how would. We- the impact of training programs that we are doing in the data economy in the region. And he was like, oh, no, look, we can absolutely take that cohort of people and give you data about how their educational or how their income outcomes changed over time. 
Can you talk about that? Like that seemed that just blew my mind. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know that even if we don't have that training program data in our system, we have the capability to match it with all of the data that's in our system. So even for like localized efforts and different training programs and things like that, we can take a cohort of people um, as long as you have the correct kind of identifiers, that personal identifiable information, we can match them into the system and then provide de-identified data back out so that you can do evaluation of those programs. I know from interacting with the state that not that long ago, these were not connected data systems. So can you talk a little bit about how you have taken these legacy systems and made them speak to each other? Yes. So states are really, really good about collecting administrative data. And typically, you know, you'll see those those data live in silos. Um, But what Kentucky has and has done over the course of the years is they've taken all of those data administrative collections across the state and kind of merged them into one so that they talk to each other so that you can see kind of how, um, you know, those service programs and the people of Kentucky are kind of moving through those so that we can make better decisions about how we can better serve the Commonwealth. So I think that that's key to, to kind of think about. And, and, and Kentucky is really a leader in this space. So uh, other states are so jealous. Um, we started out with just our public K-12 system, our post-secondary, our workforce, our financial aid, and then our teacher data. I mean, if Kentucky is at the cutting edge of leveraging state data to build better systems for our citizens and, you know, the private sector could learn something from what's going on in government, that's not a narrative we hear that often. Yeah, no, we're very fortunate here in the state. I mean, we get called all the time for interviews about how to tell other states how to do what we're doing. Um, so we're very fortunate to have what we have. And so since that kind of uh, foundation of the data sources that I mentioned to you, we've since over the past two, three years, you know, we added Cabinet for Health and Family Services to our board. And so we've really partnered closely with them because, as you know, you know, kind of that beyond education to workforce pipeline, you have those health outcomes that definitely impact and and have, you know, issues and barriers to be successful in education and workforce as well. That's not something I think everyone understands. You're talking about that your health outcomes impact your educational attainment. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes families and, and kids, you know, that are that are dealing with um, some of those uh, what I, I think our friends over at the Cabinet for Health and Family Services like to call social determinants of health. So, you know, there are certain, you know, if you're dealing with health issues, it's really difficult to be successful maybe in your education pathway or getting into the workforce. It might be a barrier into getting a job or holding a job because you're dealing with other things. And you can pull that data out. Yes, we have lots of sources to be able to pull that type of data out. Um, Some of the family type data, we're starting into the two generation type work. So looking at how families are served in Kentucky, not just people. Um, Mm. So we're really Mm. definitely in the cutting edge of that work. So I think one of the things that we are 
leaving out in uh, Dr. Cunningham is being a little bit humble there. We are the best in America at this. We have three presentations coming up at the National State Longitudinal Data Systems Conference where we're presenting on three different aspects of best practices. One of the reasons that we're able to do all this, because a lot of people are going to be like, man, silos, they, I just can't get through them. Low-hanging fruit is really easy to pick up off the ground, right? It's really easy to walk up to a high school and say, uh, what do you need? And they go, we just need post-secondary data. We have that, right? You build that connection, you build that relationship. All of a sudden, it becomes really easy to get more high school data and more post-secondary data because the post-secondary institutions, they can get information on their students that are coming in. The high school students can get information on where their students are going. Then you throw in some workforce data on top of that. Then you throw in some birth data on top of that. Then you bring in the Cabinet for Health and Family Services data on top of that. And like, as you start to steamroll these processes together, it turns into this uncontrollable, just giant avalanche of people saying, you have great data, these are our questions. And then you answer those and you answer some more. And then a couple of years later, you have 37 seconds worth of data stored up that you have to talk about on a podcast. <laughs> okay, so I want to I want to I think that's really interesting cuz you're addressing one of the things that we also wrestle with a lot which is the culture of data. You mentioned that the state collects a lot of this data, but building trust with people and getting people to engage with that data in order to do better at their jobs. Can you talk about sort of how KY Stats has, has thought about that process? We say all the time that, you know, if if the data are not used, it's just an IT project and we don't want an IT project. So really having the data together are only the beginning of the conversation. We like to engage our, our stakeholders, our board members, um, the general public, anybody that we work with from the beginning. What are the questions that you need answered, you know, to help your help you inform your everyday work. And so, um, you know, if you ask those questions to people, they're more than happy to share those with you. And then they get really excited when you say, you know what, we've got the data to answer that. And so then, you know, it just keeps the ball rolling, as Chris said. So we talk at the beginning, we come back, we have more conversations, and then they might, you know, shift their questions just a little bit, or oftentimes they want to know even more. So we go a little bit deeper, or we may have to go and get a data source um, to make sure that we we can answer the questions that they need, but but really, it's it's about those conversations with the people who are actually using the data to inform their decision making that is key to this whole thing. So you're identifying for your potential sources of data and your users a clear business case for them. For instance, um, you know, we might work with an agency and they may say, you know, we've been working on this service program for young parents and getting them the training they need to get into the workforce. But we have no idea about whether they actually gain employment and have sustained employment after they leave our kind of you know, program. And so we might have a conversation with them and say, you know, well, what are the questions that you actually want to know? Do you want to know that they're employed one year out, three years out, five years out, on average, how much they're making? And those are the types of questions and conversations we have with them from the outset before we ever even start digging into the data. 
Oh, that's so powerful. And then that builds trust with them because you're creating something useful for them in their work. And then that makes them much more likely to cooperate with you in terms of collecting data and broadens your ability to do that for other people. Exactly. Wow. So I think one of the other things that that does is all of this data lives in legacy systems, right? I mean, you have some COBOL, you have some Fortran, like all of these things exist and we're trying to bring it all up to date. And you have people that are brilliant in these organizations. They've built careers just navigating this like old monolith of mm-hmm. like push this button, see this thing happen. And yep. one of the things that we can do is we can say, these are the questions that we want to help you answer. And it provides just that little bit of push. And like we can walk up to somebody, I have no idea. I zero expertise with Fortran, but I know that I don't want to have experience with Fortran. And so, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Fortran was like a, a bad guy in GoBots in the 80s. It, it's still a bad guy everywhere, <laughs> except for all of our systems run on it. So like I can walk up to that person and it is easy for me to have a conversation with them about how fantastic they are because they are. They're brilliant individuals and they're the people that have the ability to pull this data out of those systems and give it to us in a format that is updated and usable. That's how we pull old data out of legacy systems. So you both talked a little bit earlier about concerns around security and privacy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how? What's your approach to that? Yeah. So as I said, you know, I'm I'm from Kentucky. You know, my family lives in Kentucky. These data that we have in our system are it, it's about my family and myself. So we are a data security and privacy first. So we have all kinds of um, you know acceptable use guidelines in our office that we suppress anything less than 10 in our reports to make sure that you can't tell that it's Brian working at X. So the other thing that we do is we look at situations where you can reverse numbers out. So there are situations where you have a giant population of people, but um, because there's one or two, like some of our counties aren't actually that diverse, right? So like people are like, man, I just don't understand why you can't give me this number. Well, there's, if you take the total number of people minus the demographic you're looking at, there's not 10 people left. So we have to suppress all of that as well. So it, oh, it, gets, a little, it gets a little hairy when we start like doing massive combinations of lots of data sets because we get down to numbers and we're like, well, uh, this is what we have, and it gives us another opportunity to go back to people who are solving problems and say, uh, this is how granular we can get. Does that work? Or do we need to come up with a new question to answer? And sometimes we'll get a little pushback about, you know, having to suppress those those numbers. But what we tell them is, you know, is it's like you probably shouldn't be making programmatic decisions based on less than 10 people. <laughs> This episode of Innovators is brought to you by the Future of Work Initiative powered by Microsoft. The Future of Work Initiative is dedicated to increasing economic opportunity and equity by enabling Louisville to become a regional hub and center for excellence in artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, and data science. If you are a person looking to upskill into the data economy or a company ready to embark on the next step of their digital transformation, learn more at futurelu.com. 
So I, I want to just take a step back because one of the other things that we are trying to do in highlighting innovations and innovators in our region is talk about how people have gotten into the careers that they're in. So Jessica, do you mind talking a little bit about, about how you came from Ashland to be doing this cutting edge work? that is being imitated all over the country? I actually got my master's in mathematics from the University of Kentucky and decided that the PhD in math was not a space I wanted to be in. So then I went to get my (laughs) PhD in ed policy studies and evaluation. What did you major in an undergrad and how? I mean, were you always like, I love numbers? Oh, yeah. Math. Okay. Math and chemistry. Then when I got my PhD in ed policy studies and evaluation, I um, actually went to go be a faculty member at Western Carolina University to teach others how to do research in education. And then one of my, the, my predecessor um, in this position gave me a call one day and said, hey, what are you doing? You want to do some contract work for our office? And I said, yeah, that sounds very interesting. I love data and numbers and yeah, I'm in. And then the rest is history. Chris, what about you? I went to eight different colleges. I was a BC student. There are multiple semesters where I just dropped out because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I knew that you were supposed to go to college to like be an adult and make money. I did that for a while and then I dropped out for what I thought was for good. Started laying floor, laid floor as a contractor doing ceramic and hardwood for four years. Got hurt to the point that like it was a struggle for me to walk and I definitely couldn't run. So I go, became an EMT, realized it was still unsustainable, decided to go back to school then, got a degree in Bible and religion where I focused on like storytelling and i was really fascinated with the fact that all of our history up until recent history was all saved by like telling stories stories change lives stories move the world uh started looking for jobs in storytelling couldn't find anything that didn't involve a number like at that point everything was digital storytelling if you didn't have data you didn't have a story so i got a master's in analytics from bellerman and started working on telling stories around education because education was the thing that got me out of poverty. So like I'm 33 and finally have a master's degree and I'm working on telling stories with data and I'm telling stories that got me enough recognition that I was able to move to KY Stats and use their data because they got tired of telling me that I needed MOUs and all this legal paperwork to use their information. That seems very reasonable. They moved you from irritation to assets. Kudos to them for recognizing that. I don't know, Jessica, if you were involved in that decision, but at a certain point, like, right, like organizationally, we've all been in those places where it's like, we have this outsider who keeps trying to come in and it's like so many organizations never think of the option of let the person in. Like, (laughs) if they keep knocking on the door, there might be a reason they want to be inside. You might be able to use that to your advantage. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, so now that you guys are in this, this space, where do you feel like from a career perspective, this takes you? I mean, what, what, if you were looking back in 10 years, what do you want to be able to say that you have accomplished 
in these roles or what other roles would be interesting? We always say we, you know, our goal is kind of world domination in terms of the data world. So <laughs> that's kind of our, our goal. Um, I mean, we have the best job in the world working with the team that we have and the data that we have on hand and with our partners at all of the other agencies. You know, as long as we can continue to um, gain access to different data sources that's going to inform and better people lives, I think that, you know, that's the icing on the cake for us. I would agree. I think that if I look back in 10 years, uh, I'm going to look at specific policy changes that were made because I was able to tell an effective data story using the data that we have. And I've made Kentuckians' lives better on the whole. That's awesome. So I'd like to jump in at this point in the conversation and do something I'll call flyover flybys, which are quick questions that may or may not pertain exactly to the uh, higher subjects we've been talking about. For which I take no responsibility, for the record. So first, I've got to turn to Chris because of your background, your very unique educational background. I want to know which biblical data set you would be most interested in seeing. Would you rather see the attendees of the feeding of the 5,000, the inventory of Noah's Ark, or the grocery list at the Last Supper? None of those. I want I want full demographic information, including like reach and power and like like weapon specializations of David's mighty men. I knew he would have a specific answer to this. I knew he would have a specific answer to this, and I have been dying to ask him this question for the, Wait, the remainder what? of the David's interview. mighty men. What? Are you, what? What's going on here? So in the movie Three Hundred, right? You have Gerard Butler's character who has all these like super badass like chiseled out of marble guys with like shields and whatnot you got all of them so there's a biblical equivalent of that in david's mighty men and they're described in second kings there was so and so who was better with his left hand than his right with the sword there was this other person who like goes down into a cave and kills a lion in the middle of a snowstorm and so it like describes like the best warriors that David had at his to command. Um, and so like, I just want like the full Dungeons and Dragons breakdown of like, yeah. what's your dexterity? <laughs> yeah. I want to know awesome. Dexterity, constitution, reach, weapon choice. How many hit points do they have? I, I may or may not be a preacher's kid. So I have, am going deep nerd with you on this. Uh, we could probably have this conversation for a long time. Uh, Jessica, I have a question for you. Uh, I want to know which, famous Ashland native you would most like to sit down and have a cup of coffee with? Would that be Billy Ray Cyrus, former CIA director Gina Haspel, or Chuck Woolery, the famous game show host? Oh, definitely Chuck Woolery. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer, good answer. I don't even think that needs an explanation. Ben, you want to go ahead and bring this home? Ask him your famous favorite last question. What is the thing that you see coming in the data revolution that you are most excited about? And what is the thing that most gives you the heebie-jeebies? So I think the thing that I'm most excited about is um, leveraging the data that we have in the coming um, months slash years to be able to inform kind of work around the pandemic, um, whether it be broadband access, um, equity issues and barriers across the state of Kentucky. We can leverage the, the data to really inform kind of what's going on and how we move forward 
through this. So I think that that's um, pretty exciting from my perspective. So that's a more immediate goal. I think my longer term goal is to make it easier to live in this state. We have the information. We can look at policies. We can look at processes. We can look at the way that people move in and out of systems. Let's make it easy for people to thrive and succeed in the state. Gives you the heebie-jeebies. I am terrified of like the the major corporations that are using data and like the lack of data ethics um, that is going on in training programs. Like those kinds of things really concern me. You can do a lot of really really awesome things with data, and um, sometimes those of us that try and do really awesome things, we don't realize that we've gone too far until we've gone too far. And so I'm really hoping that there are people that are like holding individuals back before they start jumping off of cliffs with really, really good ideas that are detrimental to society. Yeah, I, I echo Chris's um, concern about kind of the misuse and irresponsible use of data. Um, but also, I hesitate to even say these two words, but data breaches. <laughs> Lust we call down the gods of data upon us. <laughs> this is the thing that, that we just have to be constantly vigilant of is, is this technology and this technology is coming? Does it fit with our values? one of which is protecting the security of that data. So I'm, I'm appreciative of your awareness of those things. Yeah, and I'm appreciative of a lot of things from this conversation. And wow, I just, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by a lot of this. When, if people want to learn more about what you guys are doing, where is the best place for them to go on the internet? As it turns out, there's this website called kystats.ky.gov. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. This has been amazing. Thanks for having us. And that brings us to the end once again. If you want to know all about what is happening at the Future of Work initiative powered by Microsoft, you can find out when you go to futurelu.com and get in touch with Ben Reno Weber there. Thank you, Ben, for your hosting duties today. Always a great conversational leader. Uh, Also, Remember Flyover Future. You can visit online at flyoverfuture.com and sign up for that weekly newsletter to follow what is happening in Flyover Country in terms of innovation, AI, data, startups, and a whole lot more. Just with a few clicks of your mouse, do that and make sure you are keeping up to date. My name is Brian Eichenberger. I produce and post and edit and have a lot of fun cutting up on podcasts of all types. You can find me at wearethestoryguys.com. And we would love for you to follow this show at Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever else you download good audio fun. And remember to stay seated until we are at a full stop and then make your way off the plane. We'll see you next time.